Disclaimer. Please do not email us about the historical inaccuracies we are sure to make. We are not historians. We are idiots. Welcome to Anachronismo. I'm Max. I'm Jackie. I'm Noel. And this is a historical comedy podcast where we bring in historical stories and then make fun of them. Today, I will be talking about St. Simeon Stylite uh, and the Order of Stylite Monks. And I'll be talking about entomological warfare testing. And I'll be talking about Carrie Nation, Prohibitionist, and Hatcher Extraordinaire. Hatcher? She hatched eggs? Oh, no. She smashed up a bunch of bars. Oh, you mean a hatcheteer? Yes, hatcheteer, yes. Yeah, there we go. Mm. It's like a... Musketeer. Yes, except shorter... Yes, thank you. Thank you, Jackie. (laughs) (laughs) So I will get us started. So around the 5th and 6th century, there was an order of stylites, which were also known as pillar saints. And they lived across the Near East, and especially in the area of Syria. And what their whole gimmick was, they spent years sitting on top of pillars by themselves, thinking about holy wisdom. They were some of the most extreme uh, embodiments of the Christian ascetic movement that spread throughout the East around then. After the Christianization of the Roman Empire, there was a big need for martyrs, because since the Romans weren't just killing Christians all the time, a lot of holy men thought that the road to salvation was now too easy. And so in order to prove yourself in the eyes of God, you needed to really fuck your shit up. So some monks would deform their spines by wearing heavy chains. Others exposed their bodies to the ravages of weather or shut themselves in barrels or slept for days at a time. I would personally go for sleeping days at a time <laughs> as a form of punishment. I don't know God, but I feel like he, he it wouldn't want this. <laughs> I mean, that is pretty close to sloth. In fact, it is sloth. I mean, I'm not talking about just the sleeping for days. Yeah. I mean, any of that. And wearing the chains around your neck, that's pretty materiality right there. Well, I think they were like old rusty chains, like from old bikes. Hey, vintage stuff is pretty popular. <laughs> yeah, so they shouldn't call them chains. They yeah. should call them uh, back deformers if you're going to name stuff by their purpose and mm. not by what you're not chaining stuff together, you're <laughs> chaining things apart. So extreme mortification of the flesh isn't just an early Christian thing. It's a thing that crops up in a lot of religions, in the Far East, in the West, all over the place. But because we are going to be talking today, or I'm going to be talking today, about an early Christian saint, I'm going to focus on the ones that uh, various Christian and Catholic monks did. Mm-hmm. So some would sleep for a while, some would deform their spines, some lived in barrels like a New Yorker cartoon. There were some monks who chose to live as grazing hermits or boskoi, and they were totally dependent on vegetables and acted like grazing animals. So they would walk around mountains eating weeds, roots, and wild-growing fruit huh. in an attempt to return to the conditions of the Garden of Eden. So the whole idea of monasticism and Christian monks sort of began when, like I said, Christians were still being persecuted by the Roman authorities. But because the Roman Empire institutionalized Christianity in the 4th century, the idea of living in a monastery and devoting yourself to God and studying things and living an ascetic life rose to prominence then because it had heavy backers and an institutionalized backing, and emperors would found monasteries to do good works in their name. Sounds like it could have been an absolute heyday for Christianity instead of just being like, wait... They bought into it now. Mm-hmm. We have to destroy ourselves. They're like, oh god. Oh god, they bought it. Oh, they can't kill us anymore. Okay, what do we do? What do we do to make people think we're still cool? <laughs> oh, oh, oh. 
That guy started weapon himself. Follow him. I've only got a barrel and a chain. Uh, I'll take the chain, you take the barrel. I'm going to refer to this period of Christianity as poser Christianity. <laughs> Man, who's the most extreme monk? It's me. I have thousands of crickets on me at all times. Is that one of the things he did? Mm, there was, so there was Saint like Mark. Factor. So, two things. The idea of monks as being a kind of a spectacle was in place. They were referred to as the athletes of God because <laughs> more and more extreme asceticism began seeing as a prestigious thing. The more ascetic you were, the crazier the thing you did was, the holier you must be and the more respect you got. I don't want to see that. Like, hey, I'm Joe Rogan with Fear Factor. We have these three monks who are trying to get into this monastery right now. <laughs> They're going to have to do this extreme spinal bending with all these heavy chains. Oh, that one bent himself into a spiral. He's in. <laughs> We're gonna call him Saint Corkscrew. But we kind of revile those people as well in modern day. This is more like Olympic athletes than Fear Factor. It was more like, wow, I can't believe that monk did a triple lots of chains. The cricket one is also not that far off the mark. There is a monk called Saint Macarius of Alexandria, and he refrained from eating any cooked food during Lent. He left his cell to wander for 20 days without a single night's sleep. One time, after killing a fly, he was so stricken with guilt that he spent six months wandering the wilderness as a penitence. And when he returned, his face was so disfigured by mosquito and hornet stings that his fellow monks only recognized him by his voice. It's a little weird, because I feel like, at least what I know of Christianity, doesn't really say too much about, like, not hurting animals. So... Why that? Why so much penance for killing? Because they're all, we're all God's creatures, Jackie. Even flies. I'm just confused by this whole thing. I like to think he got into an argument with the fly and it just got out of hand. <laughs> 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 oh God, I didn't mean to. I was just so angry. He kept oh, buzzing just... around. <laughs> kept telling me I smelled delicious. And we all know that flies think poop smells delicious. I, in my anger, struck this fly down. Now I'm going to go backpacking for six months. Gonna see the world just like this fly wanted. We always <laughs> talked about seeing the world fly, you and me. I do wonder, like, if you never did swat any flies or bugs away, how many times would you get bit? Like, in six months, his face was disfigured? Well, he was also wandering through swampy, swampy wilderness. Oh. You know, where bugs love to live. I feel like urban Boston, you probably wouldn't get too many. Right into anachronismo if you've seen mosquitoes around town. Right in if you ever done extreme penance after killing a mosquito. To get back on track. There was no form of asceticism that was as prestigious as living at the top of a pillar. That was invented by the Syrian monk Simeon Stylites. Simeon was born at the end of the 4th century. He developed a zeal for Christianity at the age of 13 after reading the Beatitudes. He entered a monastery before the age of 16 and was so obsessed with Christianity, he almost just fasted himself right to death. He decided to live such an austere life that... His brethren said that he was being A, unsafe, and B, unsuited to any form of community life. <laughs> they were so worried about him, and they were also like, dude, you're being a real dick about this. Please leave the monastery. Yeah. So they oh, kicked man. him out. Then he set up his pillar right there, out in front of the monastery, so they have to walk past him every <laughs> single day and say, oh, we should have... Oh, we should have listened. Oh, he's pooping Ugh. on us right now. Yeah, where's he poop? Just off the edge. 
Uh, it's not really covered, but I assume off the edge. It's a feat of athleticism that he doesn't fall off every time he poops. Where but, does he get food from? So we're not actually there yet in the story. It took him a while to I get to this he pillar. I to catch mosquitoes with I, his hands. <laughs> no, he just sets up under like a little, like a fruit tree, fig or an apple tree, oh. and then just... okay. so. We'll let Max get to it. We'll get, I'll we... get there. We'll get there. <laughs> so he became renowned for his achievements in fasting and self-mortification. He uh, shut himself up in a hut for a year and a half. And he passed the whole of Lent while he was there without eating or drinking. And when he emerged from his hut, that dead. was... He was no, dead. No, he was <laughs> a skeleton emerged from the hut. He, he was, well, yeah, he super skinny. He eat or drink for 40 days and live. Well, you know, the thing is, church doctrine has probably become exaggerated in this time. And also, reporting was probably a little off back then. He might have actually sustained something, but this is what is set down in history. Like, so take it all with a grain of salt. It's like four days pass and someone goes... Uh, Simeon, let's over. You come out now. <laughs> you did it. Oh, he's probably just going to go on a few more days. He'll be out in a few more days. Uh, they come in, they replace Simeon with a different monk every four days. <laughs> so when he did emerge, that whole achievement was hailed as a miracle. Yeah, like, yeah. like you guys, it's like, ah, oh, there's no way he could have survived without God's grace or something, or a string of monk replacements. <laughs> he also later took to standing continually upright so long as he could until he would fall over. From exhaustion. Sounds like a toddler. Yeah, but think of like a toddler who just stands perfectly still for like four days at a time. Like a temper tantrum, like hold your breath until you pass out kind of thing. Kind of. The thing is, he didn't like being around people. He thought of them to be a distraction from God. But because of his extreme asceticism and the notoriety that gained him, people were constantly coming to beg his holy wisdoms and bother him and see how holy he was. Mm. So he eventually decided he needed to escape from all this so he could better contemplate the infinite, and he climbed a mountain and found a narrow crack in the mountain and lived there. Mm. But pilgrims still invaded the area, seeking him out and trying to get his counselor for asking him to pray for them, and so he didn't have time to, like, pray and devote himself to God. And so finally, out of this sheer frustration, he walked to the desert, found a tall, nine-meter-tall pillar, climbed to the top, and had it was like a meter square flat on top. And he's like, this is it. I'm living here. No one bother me up this pillar. Why was there a pillar there? It says here that it was left over from a ruined building ah. in the middle of the desert. He stood up there, slept up there, pooped off the edge, expanded the platform a little bit so he wouldn't roll off at night. But he um, took up a life of prayer and fasting and subsisted on small rations of bread and goat milk that local boys passed up to him. But even this didn't work. Because, after a short time, an even larger group of admirers assembled around the pillar to ask his holy wisdoms and to tell him to pray for them. And he, in response, gradually moved to taller and taller pillars. Pooping upon them the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) You want my wisdom? (laughs) Yes, my wisdom. (laughs) I've been shot on by the holy saint. I am blessed. No, go away. I will stay here and praise you every day. No. (laughs) Oh, he's so lucky. (laughs) It's good luck when Simeon poops on you. (laughs) That means you can enter the kingdom of heaven smelling terrible. So, after a while, he ended up on his tallest pillar, 18 meters tall. People who don't have the metric system in their heads, that is roughly 50... You don't have the metric system in your head, do you? <laughs> it's roughly 54 feet high. Um, it's really high. It's really high. And How did you get up there? He yeah. climbed. What? Is this the side of the pillar? Maybe a ladder. Who knows? He can't be physically strong. How did he get up there? He hasn't been eating anything. 
I think he's, like, climbed a ladder or something. All Maybe right. he, like, climbed the rocky outcroppings. They were ruins, after all. Calculation is in 18 meters, 59 feet. 59 feet. 59 feet tall. So, only finally, after climbing to a 59-foot-tall pillar, Simeon was, like, finally realized he wasn't driving anyone away. More and more people came to see this monk at the top of his incredibly tall pillar and asked for his holy wisdoms. And he decided to just embrace it. So at dawn, he would perform hundreds of genuflections, which are, like, bending over and, like, praying before God. So it was basically he was touching his toes hundreds of times at dawn <laughs> to show to people. And then at midday... He would give sermons to the crowds. According to church doctrine, he ended up converting several pagan tribes to Christianity. He ended up inspiring a lot of other monks to start climbing on top of pillars and doing the same thing, following in his footsteps, finding this whole thing. And the thing is, he did this to get away from people so he could just be alone and pray. And then people start copying him all over the place. It's not what he wanted at all. He just wanted to be left alone on top of his tall, tall pillar. But he got so famous that reports of him reached the imperial court, and the emperor Theodosius II and his wife Aelia Eodosia traveled to see him and ask for his counsels with their whole court retinue. Oh my god. (laughs) And Emperor Leo I had a written correspondence with him via letters, which then begs the question, how did he get the letters? Up a little basket. I guess, where'd he get the paper? Uh, up the basket. basket. Yeah, it's all the... It's all basket by, by local boys. Squeak, squeak, squeak. <laughs> I don't know. This guy almost sounds like every time he moves to a taller pillar, it's just kind of like a, no, stop. I don't want to be seen by any more people. I'm just going to climb this higher pillar so more this crowds can see me from afar. This one can be seen from two villages away. I can oh. s- I can see in everyone's windows. <laughs> I see everything, and they are sinful. Uh, that actually did come up, though. So the church thought that he was very extreme, and they were like, is this guy doing this out of pride or humility? Is he really genuinely doing this for respect for God, or is he doing this for his own fame? So they sent some priests to tell him to come down from his pillar, and if he refused, their plan was to tear down the pillar and drag him before the church. But he just, like, he climbed down, he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll come down. Uh, the church says so, the church, you know, just... and they're like, no, 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 you can stay up there, you can stay up there. You're cool, that was a test. <laughs> Which also mirrored itself later in life, because one time he got very, very ill, and Theodosius, the emperor, sent three bishops to come and beg him to allow himself to be attended by a physician. And he said, no, if I'm going to recover... God will cure me, and he did, in fact, recover. How did he not die of exposure? How many years has he has he been out there uh, at this point? So he spent I mean, a total of 37 years on top of that pillar. What? Yeah, 37 years on top of that pillar. That's insane. He died on the 2nd of September, 459. A disciple found his body stooped over in prayer at the top of the pillar. After his body was taken down, it was brought to Antiochia in what is modern-day Turkey in a large funeral procession. And in his wake, other monks took up the mantle of Simeon Stylites. There were two other Simeon Stylites. The best-known Simeon the Younger climbed to the top of a pillar before he was eight years old and remained there for 68 years. How did he climb up there before he was eight years old? I see your your face saying, Noel. No, it's just, wow. (laughs) Yeah. What was his home life like, I wonder? Yeah. Yeah. You'll never amount to anything near on the ground. Why don't you get your head in the cloud, young man? Get your head into the cloud. Want to see a good cloud head boy, not this earth bottom boy. Well, 
68 years is a long time, but I guess if there are taller and taller mobility, or, sorry. I'm There's a lot of upward mobility. Yeah, damn pillars. it, I was making that. Boom. Stolen. Ate it. I devoured your joke. And after Simeon the Younger, a third Simeon, followed in the footsteps of his predecessors, but his career was cut short after he was struck by lightning. Ah. Oh. Which must have made his holy career seem awfully suspect. Yeah. <laughs> Too easy. He got killed too fast. Too fast. Boom. Too God easy. didn't like it. Boom. The uh, path to heaven was too easy. <laughs> <laughs> Find something new to do. Don't just keep doing the same thing. Boom. God smote him. That's what it is. Maybe he was Probably gambling not. at the top of that pillar. Maybe he was making false vows at the top of that pillar. Who is he gambling against? Himself. <laughs> Towards the end of the 8th century, the popularity of ascetic monasticism waned, and all these Crazy monks with their incredibly crazy self-mortification sort of went away. Pillar saints went away. The whole idea of religious faith and crazy asceticism sort of waned. There was still a whole thing for extreme acts of penance, but it wasn't supposed to be your whole life. There were, for about a period of about 400 years, if you were wandering the desert in Syria or Turkey and you came across a pillar, there was a pretty good chance there was a monk on top of that pillar. This is insane. Yeah. I love it. The end. No moral. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just can't wrap my head around this. Yeah? What's so tough about it? Like, I just can't think of why you would want to do this. Or if you're going to have a life of aestheticism, like, go into the monastery and be like, Mr. Head Monk, may I please have a room to myself? No one bother me. Well, that just wasn't extreme enough for Simeon. But he wouldn't have the problem with people bothering him all the time if he was yeah, just like, ex- leave me in here for a while. Well, the idea of single-room saints, which was a thing in later church doctrine of, I was like an anchorite, which was you would just brick someone up in a room except for one brick, which you would put food through, and, you know, they had a normal train, and then they just lived there until they died. Oh. That didn't actually come around until the Middle Ages. That's also gross. If you were in a monastery, you were expected to participate with monastery life and earn your keep. Mm. And Is that like a back house for people who want to be aesthetic? You know, you had a lot of great you ideas know, that they could have listened to back like, then. Like a little torture house in the back. <laughs> Torture House always throws the wildest parties. They're on triple secret probation from the <laughs> monk dean. <laughs> Torture House? Rabble-rousing monks? Oh. <laughs> They've been having an all-fasting festival for 20 days now. We can't keep that in the budget. <laughs> Torture House? I can think of better ways to escape than isolating yourself and well, making it impossible to escape. And well, let's like have just... that be our, our hypothetical question. What's a better way to escape? What's a better way to escape? Yeah. Just go to any town. Like, I mean, this is the Roman Empire. Like, just go anywhere. Just go anywhere and live in that town and, you know, find, like, a church or monastery there. And It seems like if you want to kind of isolate yourself and stay hidden than putting yourself on a giant pillar and just having swarms of people come around you and just staying there for decades at a time is not the best way to do it. He kept trying and trying, man. Pick a direction and keep walking. Oh, the old walking saint. Yeah. Well, look how it worked for Saint Lumpy. The guy with the face got stung a lot. Yeah, but don't don't come back. Just go straight. Just go straight in a strip. But it wasn't him coming back. He'll come back, back eventually. The world's round, Jackie. Yes, well, they don't know a, that. It'll take a long time. That's <laughs> true. And no one will follow you the whole way. That's, yeah, you're right. People will get tired. They'll want to go back to their farms and families. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It'll be like Forrest Gump, but he'll have a reason for having <laughs> walked somewhere. And he won't become famous. Ah, uh, yes. Saint Gumpus and the Gumpites. 
Every Marathon Monday, the Gumpites ritually recreate Gump's run. Uh, I think a really good way of getting away is to uh, invent a rocket ship and colonize the moon. Oh. Just yourself. And then you can look down on all of humanity and be like, I'm closest to God. I'm the highest up. And look how high I can jump. Wow, you would have been millennia ahead of your time. Yeah. <laughs> I think he should have dug a tunnel from the monastery, mm. made himself like a little underground chamber, mm. and then plugged up the hole to the monastery. Ah, uh, the old mole monk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I know what I would have done. What? I would have put up a scarecrow on top of the pillar, <laughs> and then I would have gone down and disguised myself as one of the pilgrims and just spend a lot of time trash-talking the <laughs> scarecrow and trying to destroy my own reputation. Oh, that's a good one. I think oh. I would just, you know, join secular life. Mm. Look at him. All he wants to do is scare away birds. <laughs> what a fraud. Let's all throw gold at him. <laughs> Our sins. <laughs> Throw gold in your finest cloth at him. He'd hate that. He'd, he'd really, that. yeah, that would be materialistic and I would really stick it to him. You know what he hates? Chocolate chip cookies. Toss him. Toss him up there, the fraud. <laughs> we'll see if he eats them with his painted on mouth. <laughs> you hussy. <laughs> you hussy. <laughs> He hasn't pooped off of that legend day. Where's he's giving saving it, it all for himself, <laughs> not giving it to any of the pilgrims. Uh, selfish. Let's give th- us your holy poops. <laughs> Let's throw our poop up at him. <laughs> He'll hate that. Oh, he doesn't hoard poop up there at all. Doesn't use it as a crude building material for little dolls of people he talks to to pretend he's not so alone. Little poop bed. <laughs> poop wife. Poop children. <laughs> So, Jackie, let's hear your story that I hear is very sad and not related to pooping monks. Yeah, so I was originally drawn to this because it was about um, military testing Mm -hmm. that all had really silly kind of fun project names. Mm -hmm. Uh, But it turned out to be sad, but we're going to keep going. Hooray! So I'm going to be talking about entomological warfare testing done by the United States Army. And I was originally drawn to it because all the different operations and testing names were very fun and zany, but it got a little sad. Entomological, is that testing dangerous words? No, it's bugs. Oh, oh, I'm thinking of etymological warfare. Yes, this is entomological Just warfare. swearing so hard at someone they die. Yep. Yelling so hard a little heart explodes. <laughs> oh, that only works for little mice. Oh, <laughs> That's the worst kind of mouse trap. You know it's caught a mouse because in the middle of the night you're just woken up by screaming obscenities. Are the mice trying to kill you in that situation? No, it's the mouse mouse trap screams them to death. Oh, I was thinking that the mouse would be caught. You'd get like a little alert on your phone. You'd be like, okay, time to go talk some bad stuff to this mouse. (laughs) Time to go talk a mouse into killing itself like Hannibal Lecter did. He talked a mouse into killing itself? He talked that. another inmate into killing themselves. Oh, okay. Yeah. But that's well. different than a mouse. Yeah. yeah but we weren't it... talking about people, Max. Okay. Well, I Who can... are you catching in your mouse traps <laughs> and screaming at them until they die? Uh, I don't know, but they're eating all my cheese. Just a man in a giant mouse costume. Let me out. <laughs> Please, Max. Oh, God. Please. I'm just a mascot for Chuck E. Cheese. Please, Max. I haven't seen Fooey in two weeks. And you never will. No. <laughs> He does look pretty cute in the mouse costume, though. (laughs) (laughs) 
actually would look. Yeah. I think he would, yeah. But I'm immediately going back to the more horrific image of him <laughs> almost bowed down at your feet in that mouse costume as you were. I'll be back tomorrow with more yelling. Podcast listeners might remember Fooey because he was a, a guest on our show and he talked about jewels in the French Revolution. He talked about the diamond necklace affair. Diamond necklace yes. affair. So just imagine that voice. In a oh, mouse costume. <laughs> squeaky, squeak, squeak, squeaky, squeak. <laughs> uh, but no, uh, uh, etymological etymol- warfare yeah. was bugs. Yes, uh, specifically <laughs> mosquitoes, mm-hmm. like our Love good friend them. who like mm-hmm, got mm-hmm. himself all bit up, and fleas. Oh, yeah, what fleas make you think of? Dogs. Plague testing. Oh, so not dogs. Okay. So I got most of my information for this from a March 1981 report mm-hmm. from the U.S. Army that was declassified, I think, in the 90s at some point, called An Evaluation of Entomological Warfare as a Potential Danger to the U.S. and European NATO Nations. The whole framing device was kind of that the Soviet Union and its allies have been seen to be testing entomologic warfare, and we should find out everything about it, such as how to do it, its cost-effectiveness, and where would be good places for us to target in defense <laughs> of them doing this. It's a bug's arms race. Was the, uh, yeah, so that was the that was the framing device for this report. As far as I can tell, it was about 59 pages long. The declassified portion was only 10 pages long, so who knows what else is in there. But it outlined a couple different operations, and I might throw in a couple other ones that were related. There were some fun names of their different testings mm. called Operation Big Buzz. <laughs> that one's about mosquitoes, guys. Oh, I was hoping it was just a single giant bee. <laughs> that would be good. Um, so Operation Big Buzz was a, a field test in Georgia in 1955 where they took 300,000 mosquitoes, lifted them up in an aircraft. <laughs> those mosquitoes must have been so confused (laughs) I can't stop laughing because it sounds so silly but I'm just imagining all these military people on the side watching that plane go and just being like this is a good idea (laughs) just slowly (laughs) saluting I'm picturing all the mosquitoes in little airline seats getting a little drink from the drink cart yes I'd like blood please oh I'll have a blood as well blood light for me That is adorable, but in actuality, they were loaded into bombs. Oh. Yeah, so they were dropped in munitions. And then squished when they fell. Uh, no, they found uh, most of them were alive. So it wasn't just an inventive way to kill mosquitoes. No, it, they, the the munitions were filled with, like, sponges and cardboard. Okay. So they weren't killed when it fell. And they dropped it from about, like, 300 feet, so mm-hmm. not super high. Mm-hmm. So they picked mosquitoes because... They are vectors for yellow fever. So they are just testing what the conditions are that we can release yellow fever mosquitoes. This is for your benefit. Looking out for your well-being. Yeah, yeah. So basically, they tested the feasibility of producing, storing, loading, and dispersing yellow fever mosquitoes. So the tests that they did were with mosquitoes that were not infected with yellow fever, because, I mean, there probably would have been... More people upset if they were testing with real yellow fever. Mm. So they were just testing if the mosquitoes could survive this. And if they survived it, would they start seeking meals? How did they track the mosquitoes? I believe they set traps for them. So not little tiny mosquito tags on all of them that took forever no. to put on. <laughs> no. So I believe that oh, this look, one... it's a firefly. It's blinking on and off. And, oh, it's biting me. 
The document only mentioned that one of these tests was done in a residential area. So I think <laughs> only one. Only one. It's unmentioned for the others. So I'm going to hope that this was actually just like in some random airfield mm. or like wooded area that people didn't live in where they could test us. Mm-hmm. The result was that they found mosquitoes that were still biting about 2,000 feet from the release site, and they were biting both humans and guinea pigs. So I don't know if there were just military personnel sitting around waiting to get bit by mosquitoes, or if this was in a place where people live. But it seems like for guinea pigs, I'm pretty sure are not native to Georgia. So I think they put the guinea pigs there on purpose. Mm-hmm. As guinea pigs. For biting purposes. Oh, and little tiny guinea pig military uniform. <laughs> little little berets. Oh, so cute. Every guinea pig gets a medal at the end of it. Oh, then a little medal ceremony medal. run by other guinea pigs. Oh, it definitely Squeak, 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 squeak. Translation, you're a hero, Sergeant Nibbles. <laughs> oh, man. So, I'll immediately take the medal and put it in their cheeks. Yeah, like the big old, like, blustery colonel guinea pig just has, like, a totally clean vest and just a bunch of metal-shaped protrusions in his cheeks. <laughs> and a big white handlebar mustache. <laughs> We're done. So for this test, they bred um, a million female mosquitoes, and they only ended up releasing the 300,000. The rest were used for, like, testing how to load and store mosquitoes. (laughs) (laughs) This um, is a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) So in 1954... They started another operation called Operation Big Itch. This one was in Utah, and they were checking the coverage pattern and survivability of the tropical rat flea. This one, they dropped it in two different kinds of bombs, E-14s and E-23s. E-14 was the one that was used for the uh, mosquitoes. So the E-14s had 100,000 fleas in them, and the E-23s had 200,000 fleas in them. The uh, E-23s failed in over half the tests, releasing all the fleas into the aircraft (laughs) pilot, Bombardier, and the Observer. This is a good idea with a few flaws. (laughs) Flaws? Don't you mean fleas? (laughs) Where are they on me? Could you imagine being in an airplane filled with a hundred thousand... No, this is the E-23, so two hundred thousand fleas. Yeah, just the... trying to fly it? No, oh I'm surprised God. it didn't crash and burn. I just imagine them taking out their, like, service revolver and trying to shoot the fleas. <laughs> oh. You idiot, we have to use grenades. <laughs> you can't shoot a gun in an aircraft. <laughs> You'll depressurize the whole thing. <laughs> Shoot. This is a good idea. <laughs> This report did not mention if they were testing this with the intention of having the fleas be carriers and vectors of a disease. I mean, it's possible they did and they just didn't include this. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But their result was that they found out that they could affect a battalion-sized area with one load of 100,000 fleas. And they would affect the area for about a day because the fleas stop trying to bite people after about a day for... Flea purposes, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't flea, flea reasons. Flea agendas. Flea reasons. Yeah. So then another fun operation was Operation Dropkick. And this was done by the U.S. Chemical Corps. And this was done in a quote-unquote cooperative residential area of Savannah, Georgia. Were <laughs> the quotes in the, uh, the report? Or did you just add those for effect? <laughs> I added them for effect. Mm. But it was called a cooperative residential area. Wow. Uh. Yeah. 
So the purpose of this one was to estimate how many mosquitoes entered people's homes and bit them. And similar tests were done in 1958 in Avon Park, Florida. This test was also designed to test dispersal in an urban area. Okay. So not a battalion like our flea test. This one was specifically for how will this affect people? Civilians. 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 For our protection. (laughs) This is a good idea. (laughs) For yellow fever, which was the disease that they were hoping that mosquitoes could be used to be the vector for, it was estimated that 50 to 90 percent of non-immune people who were bitten would become infected. And of those, 30 to 40 percent of them would die. So it came out that of a population of non-immune people, more than 50 percent would be likely incapacitated and a large number of them would die if they did do a mosquito attack. More than 50%. God damn. Would either be incapacitated or die from yellow fever. Yeah, that's real bad. It is. It is really bad. So table five of this report, which was delightful, was called various estimates of costs per death from F. tularensis aerosol attack on a city. Does anyone want to guess how much it would cost per per death death to to kill 50% of the people? Either very low or very high. We're talking 1950s dollars or? Uh, 1976. Okay. Uh, Cause, okay, so this report was also comparing this to other sorts of chemical weapons. So I think that was part of the redacted part of the report, but okay. didn't include the cost analysis for chemical weapons. Okay. So this was brought to 1976 dollars to make it a better comparison. <laughs> I but see. I found their 2018 Windler values, accountants. so we can guess for 2018 dollars. 2018 dollars. 2018 dollars. <laughs> the cost per death. Let's go low high. I'm gonna guess $5 per death. Oh wait, you know, that's not counting airplane fuel. Uh, let's go with $20 per death. I'm gonna go with so I. I think that for this one, you might want to change your guess on this. But for this one, I believe this was ground dispersal. Mm-hmm. was what they were doing. So it would be like trucks instead. Okay, okay. Just mm-hmm. trucks full of fleas. Alright, $7 per death. I'm Okay, I'm gonna go with $80 per death. If he's going low, I'm gonna go high. Uh, <laughs> you're both wrong. If there was 50% death from a dispersal, it would be in 2018 dollars, $1.26. That's a cheap kill. That's really depressing. Um, and then their low end estimate for if only 5% died was $12.46. We can't afford not to at these <laughs> low, low prices. That's cheaper than a box of bullets. Um, yeah, nice. so the document jumps from page 16 to 59. Mm-hmm. 59 has the conclusions page. So we can just speculate on what was on the in-between. So their conclusions were that there's evidence Warsaw-packed countries have experimented with entomological warfare, that yellow fever is the most likely anti-personnel EW system, or foot-and-mouth disease. It also alluded to 15 simultaneous urban attack testings. So I don't know if that was in the the missing pages or if they just kind of scaled up their estimates from their one test on an urban area. Mm. And it also concluded that this would be unlikely to be employed on military units because you need to get really close to release these things. <laughs> but a bunch would... of bug spies. Yeah. Just people carrying suitcases full of fleas. Because <laughs> you can't really get an airplane full of fleas. Over a big battalion. Over, over an army Get shot area. down, yeah. Mm-hmm. Listen, um, I've got the excellent business proposition for you. I've come all the way from the United States for it. <laughs> and like this board meeting, just like Soviet Union people being like, yes. And then he just opens a briefcase of mosquitoes. Just <laughs> and just slowly salutes. This is a good idea. <laughs> I've got a business proposition for you orphans. <laughs> Look at this briefcase. Why orphans? 
Because for our safety. <laughs> Clearly the most dangerous people are being targeted by these. They've got no family. They've got nothing to tie, hold them back, nothing to tie them down. I guess. So, um, the other conclusion that it met was that this would work in civilian urban populations or cause severe economic losses on livestock or cattle. The report ended on a happier note with recommendations. We're not going to do this. <laughs> <laughs> no, it didn't say that. <laughs> with um, recommendations on how to handle things with the public in case this sort of attack happened to the United States or its European NATO allies. Um, and it was basically just informing the public quickly mm-hmm. and reassuring them that they'll be okay. <laughs> we'll get them back. Don't and worry. that they should use insecticide immediately. Don't worry, we've got counter fleas. We've got U.S. Patriot fleas, each armed with a tiny handgun, taking down those Russian fleas. <laughs> I don't know why I love the idea of fleas with handguns so much, but I do. It is it's pretty cute. It's like a little flea circus. Yeah. So we jump from one story where a man lets all the bugs and stuff do whatever to his mm-hmm. face to one where man harnesses these bugs for his bidding. <laughs> so, I mean, it makes no mention if actually yellow fever infested mosquitoes were released anywhere. Well, they probably um, were. But it sounds like they were getting ready to try that. Mm-hmm. The cost ratio seemed right. Yeah, that is bargain bin death right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this whole thing made me sad. I was excited by the titles, Operation Big Buzz, Operation Big Itch. Like, they sound delightful. Yeah. But, uh... It started out real fun, and then the cold brutality of war sank in. Yeah. 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 But you can read that re- that semi-redacted report. Mm-hmm. If you'd like, you can find it online. So, what do we think was in the rest of that report? And let's not go, oh, chemical stuff. What delightful thing that changes the entire scope and nature of this report. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, we already touched on the guinea pigs. I have had a mental image now of, like, talking about, like, getting close to military personnel of almost, like, Mission Impossible, like, little tiny guinea pig all in black being lowered down on a tiny little fishing hook. (laughs) This tiny little guinea pig uh, paws just kind of... Blip, 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 in the air. Guinea pig espionage. Yeah. Yeah. We can but that's them. not my, uh, that's not my guess. I'm I, redacted. I think the rest of the report, rehousing and job programs for all of the mosquitoes that weren't dropped in that final test. Because <laughs> there were a million altogether mm-hmm. for just one of the programs, and they only dropped 300,000. They built Those tiny others. mosquito city and gave them all mosquito jobs and things yeah. to do. Little mosquito bicycles to get around because they don't want them flying without uh, checking it with air traffic control. Yeah. It's just a little mosquito utopia yeah. that the country shouldn't know about. A, mis- a mosquitopia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Better life than us. <laughs> That's where your U.S. tax dollars are going. <laughs> America. Those dang mosquitoes. <laughs> I would like to speculate that since they were using very small animals, um, they only went like one or two steps up, so they went from mosquitoes to mice and i wanted to say this is where i'm going to speculate when i'm gonna i'm gonna jump right over the mice to ducks so i think the military would have bred ducks to go and attack grain silos and grain storage and steal all of their grain and bread to cause starvation in the enemy i thought we weren't going dark okay okay but think about these ducks just descending and stealing all the bread from a supermarket that's pretty cute that's pretty cute <laughs> until you think about the starving family that's had that supermarket <laughs> Just watching the ducks file out, knowing that there are too many to to overtake. And the newly orphaned children then have to go to the U.S. government and be like, I guess I'll hold that briefcase full of mosquitoes. What about puppies instead? That ends yeah, warfare. Right. 
puppies. <laughs> <brought> puppies from <laughs> an airplane. <laughs> yeah, with little tiny puppy parachutes, and then like the <laughs> military and the villages get her, and like the cities and like any small urban or rural area yeah. starts just getting puppies, and everyone's really happy. Winning hearts and minds. Oh, yeah. And then, in nice. the dead of night, the puppies, <laughs> the puppies get out their little the tiny puppy ships. <laughs> See, I was going to say the puppies sneak up and snap everyone's necks with yeah. little puppy paws, but they're just they're a little slippery, so they keep on like, slipping. Slide around. Yeah. Slide around they're, they're all roly-poly. Oh, the puppy's trying to give me a hug. <laughs> and we made a tactical error. Perhaps this was not a great idea. How dare you? should train them for several more weeks. But then... They'd be dogs. Uh, I, I had one other thing about, not the redacted thing, but what would you have named your operation? What fun little name would you have given a, a warfare operation? Operation Bonkers Team at Quack Quack. For this one? For the duck one. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. oh just any, any, any war operation? Related to mosquitoes or fleas. Oh, okay, okay, then that makes a totally different thing. Operation... <laughs> operation Quackers McQuack. <laughs> <laughs> Mine would have been breakneck puppies or <laughs> puppies delivered at breakneck speed. Operation Tiny Draculas. Oh, that's good. Operation Tiny Kisses. Operation X marks the spot. And I'm trying to think of a clever segue. Yeah, let's uh, let's take a second. Ever wish you could attack a mosquito with a hatchet because you hate them so much? Well, what if the mosquito was a bar and you were a suffragette who wanted prohibition? What if you hated blood drinking? It wouldn't be too far to say I hate alcohol drinking. Especially when your blood alcohol level's high. Because then you're drinking blood and alcohol. Worst of both worlds. Mm -hmm. I'm anti-vampire and anti-alcohol. And pro-family. So speaking of doing things for the greater good, even if it's not a great idea and it winds up hurting innocent people, let's talk about Carrie Nation. Carrie Amelia Nation, who as a sort of, I get not pen name, but she kind of used her name to be her a... Her stage name? Yeah, her stage name of Carrie A. Nation. Mm -hmm. Carrie, Carrie A. Nation. Nation. Carrie A. Nation for Prohibition. I get what it. she used, yeah. Mm-hmm. Was clever. That's good. She was a member of the temperance movement. She was active at the end of the 19th century before Prohibition in the 1920s. And she was most famously known for smashing up local bars with a hatchet. Did the hatchet have a name? The hatchet did not have a name. Chopper. But I, I just, Chopper. even though people won't be able to see that at home, I want to show a trop house. picture of this tough old broad like. She looks formidable. Yes. So Carrie was born uh, into sort of a bit of a rough childhood. Mm -hmm. um, her family had to move a lot. The Civil War forced her family to move quite a bit from Missouri to Texas, where they did not have luck in running their businesses, so they had to move back to Missouri. Her mother supposedly was insane or was at least committed to an asylum. There was some speculation that her mother believed she was Queen Victoria because of her love of finery and social airs. That seems so. like pretty sparse ground to base that off of. Well, it was the 19th century, so... so yeah. I don't like this lady. She's insane. Send her to the asylum. She's kooky. Get her out of here. There were some people who speculated that it was actually a family issue where one of the family members got her committed mm. because they owed her money, mm. which seems more likely for getting someone committed in the 19th century of just, I need to get out of this debt. All I need to do is prove this person's crazy. 
She thinks she's Queen Victoria. Get her out of here. I mean, can you imagine if you could get rid of your student loans if you just had to prove one person was insane? Fanny Mae's crazy. <laughs> Look at that name, Fanny. Should have had a change. Great Lakes. They think they're a lake. Ship that company up the river. <laughs> to the lakes. Dump them in the old lake. That's what I say. Uh, Great Lakes is my loan servicer. Uh. <laughs> I just realized that's not like probably not a well-known one. <laughs> So during the Civil War, Carrie met her first husband, who was a doctor for the Union, but he was an alcoholic, mm. and despite the objections from Carrie's parents, they got married, but he died only a few years later because of alcoholism, and so that is the belief of this is what spurred her to be part of the temperance movement, quite reasonably so. She got remarried several years later, and this is where she started to get more active in the temperance movement. So she moved to a place called Medicine Lodge, Kansas, and began to start protesting outside of bars. I really like that it said that at first she would sing hymns to the people at the bars as a protest, but then it got to the point that she started greeting bartenders with remarks such as, Good morning, destroyer of men's souls. (laughs) (laughs) Which is really sassy. But she didn't actually get physical until she believed that she had a vision in which God told her, take something in your hands and throw at these places in Kiowa and smash them. Smash them in my name. This makes so much more sense to me than any of this pillar stuff. (laughs) Because, like, that's just you on your personal journey. She's at least trying to improve the souls of men Uh and society. Maybe she would have smashed up a pillar if she had been alive back in the 400s. Just pushed one over with a saint at the top. (laughs) Like, dummy. (laughs) (laughs) So, Nation decided that the thing that she was going to use to smash was rocks, which she just proceeded to call smashers. (laughs) So she took some smashers and went to Dobson's Saloon, saying, men, I have come to save you from a drunkard's fate, and began to destroy uh, various bottles and furniture with the rocks. What a great mental image. I'm picturing her spinning wildly, rock held in each hand. Untouchable. Just like a little tornado going through. Like a real Tasmanian devil character. No one can get close (laughs) enough because they get hit by the rocks. Well, funnily enough, after she had destroyed two saloons in this manner, a tornado hit in Kansas in that same area, destroying a lot more buildings, which she took as a sign from the divine that Mm -hmm. she was doing God's work. Yeah. Tornado, and I shall become what they fear most. For drinkers are a cowardly and superstitious lot. I shall become spin lady. Spin class. Spinneret. Spin city. Spinadindin. Spinder. Spinderman. Spinderwoman. Tornado alley. I'm going to choose one of those in editing. (laughs) I just wanted that list to go on for like two minutes. Two solid minutes of just random, like more and more obscurely strung together words. Spinlet's web. Charlotte's spin. Okay, I... You can have, no, no, two more shots. Two more. (laughs) Twizzle twister. I was a good one, Jackie. Unless you blew your chance. Damn it. So Carrie began her 
crusade against bars, she would wind up being arrested over 32 times. And wow. she would always make bail money because uh, she made money on the side giving sermons. She sold souvenir hatchets to people. So Was she, this before this or amazing. after she took up the hatchet? Where did she take up the hatchet in this? She, I think she took up the hatchet after the first few bar smashings in Kansas. Okay. After she had such success with rock, she's like, she saw a hatchet and was like, oh. That's a rock on a stick. And a sharp one. No one would come near me with that. Wow. <laughs> <So> spinning around. <laughs> she would often do these smashings by herself, but other times she would have groups of women with her, and they would just smash up at a place all the while singing hymns, which just sounds... fantastic. Sounds like a nice Sunday in the park. Dang. Yeah. Her attacks begin to be referred to as hatchetations. <laughs> That's way better than any of my long, long list of things. <laughs> and yeah, she just, she would make the money for her bails to give fees and sell souvenirs. Which I'm kind of confused at because paying bail and going to trial aren't the same thing. So she was arrested, but I never saw anything about her actually serving time. Just move to the next state, can't. Pursue her across state lines. But almost all of this was in Kansas and Missouri. (laughs) Maybe people, maybe they just didn't want to prosecute. Nice old lady who smashed up bars. Or maybe the taverns had insurance policies. Mm. Or maybe you can't convict a tornado. (laughs) (laughs) She had divine providence or whatever it is. The cuffs keep falling off. (laughs) (laughs) Can't trap the wind. (laughs) <laughs> the other tornadoes will show up in protest and our city will be ruined. Ruined. Best to just let her have her way. The wind blows where it will. I'm just imagining that some sheriff or like judge is standing outside of a bar with some patron who's just looking at her through the window just smashing up his place and just let it go. <laughs> tornadoes destroy a lot of buildings. I was picturing them standing outside of a barn with a twister, like, coming towards them in the distance, and the police chief is just holding up a pair of handcuffs, looking determined as the wind whips their, like, coat backwards, and Heather Hat flies away. And All right, And then tornado. a hatchet comes by. <laughs> All right, tornado. Cuts the handcuffs in <laughs> Looks down at him, looks up again. You win this round. Takes out his police baton and just runs right into it. <laughs> the last shot is him leaping into the tornado with a baton held up to strike and his cuts to black. <laughs> this summer. So a great quote of how Carrie described herself, that she described herself as a bulldog running along at the feet of Jesus, barking at what he doesn't like. <laughs> so eventually her reputation began to be so well known that Saloons adopted the phrase, all nations welcome, but carry. (laughs) Kind of spun that around on her, which I don't know. I don't know what they could have done to protect them. It seems like, I don't know how she didn't get. They needed to hire their own lady with a hatchet to fight her against her. Because clearly that is the only thing that could stand against her. Mm Yeah, because it's it strikes me that you have a just a bar full of patrons. You have one person running in with a hatchet, smashing up the place. Wouldn't you try to stop her? Would you just... I don't own that bar. I'll let her go for it. I don't want to get chopped up with a hatchet. Lady seems determined. She seems crazy. Yeah. She has a side. hatchet. 
I don't know. Maybe they got a good reputation out of it. She looks like a crazy bulldog with Jesus running along behind her telling her to bark at people. <laughs> yeah. Get her, Carrie. I like that reverse. Not that she's following Jesus and doing what he wants. Jesus is following her being like, yeah, that's fine. Keep going. Yeah. That's cool. That's my dog. That's my dog. It's cool. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Whoa. Or it's like when the dog starts peeing somewhere and you're like, oh, no, don't pee there. Oh, fine. So it's like, oh, Carrie, no, no. Oh, all right. All right. All right. That's fine. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't control where she pees. (laughs) So, in her later life, she just continued on her activities, but she stopped the smashing up of bars. Mm -hmm. Um, She had a bi-weekly newsletter called The Smasher's Mail. Yes. She had a newspaper called The Hatchet. Yes. She appeared in vaudeville act and music halls. She did lectures. She continued to sell miniature souvenir hatchets. She just had a... Where did she get I love the hatchets so that she sold? I don't know. Did she have a deal with the factory? Or did she just spend an evenings just making tiny hatchets? I think she probably got it from a factory. Industrialization throughout the Midwest probably was not that hard to get. Well, I could get it for a song. A vaudeville song. I mean, it strikes me that as the Wright brothers were practicing flying planes this woman was going throughout the uh, area just a couple hundred miles away just smashing a bar strapping herself to planes and holding the hatchet real low so when it comes down she just tears straight through the bar and it's <laughs> hey carrie get on board <laughs> so you're strapping little goggles to her face and pulling out the hatchet and then just diving out of the plane onto the bar and she arrives and just a Hail of shattered glass. <laughs> kind of a meanie, because uh, when William McKinley was shot, suspecting that he was secretly an alcoholic, she said that after his assassination, drinkers got what they deserved. Wow. So, whew, she was a fiery one. Her home in Medicine Lodge, Kansas, became a U.S. National Historic Landmark in 1976. Hmm. And the reason that I bring up Carrie Nation is yesterday we were at a birthday party downtown Boston, a place called Carry Nation that had a bunch of, like... Hatchets everywhere. Yeah, it had hatchets on the menu, a lot of Prohibition-era pictures, and... And it was a bar that sold alcohol. Yeah. Yes. It, was, it just... was like a big middle finger to Carry Nation. Yeah. Part of her legacy. And apparently there are multiple bars. Um, there's one in... The uh, first one appeared to have been uh, a bar in California in the 1970s. Yeah. There's one in Cincinnati and uh, one in Boston. That's like using Woody Guthrie songs to sell cars. Putting Che Guevara shirts for sale at Hot Topic. I would have put a bunch of hatchets in a bomb and dropped those. <laughs> like shrapnel? See how fast, the, how far the, the hatchets travel. What I'm picturing is a big barrel and there's like little slots in them that are like spring-loaded and he just carefully creak, puts each hatchet in, creak, facing outward, and there's a big button on the bottom so when it lands, psh, psh, Gets sent out in different directions. Yeah. You know, a spring barrel. Hmm. Classic spring barrel. (laughs) We got a a volunteer community to agree to the hatchet bomb. (laughs) Cooperative. Yeah. It's called called Operation Big Chop. They were very cooperative. We thought someone else was going to do this to us, so we need to practice. We heard about Carrie Nation and we said, never again. So yeah, that was Carrie Nation. Just the uh, it struck me as just so strange that she was like so um, you know, part of the temperance movement. I believe she was having like visions to 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 do this work, but then just got into the 
so heavily into the business and entertainment side and had an egg thrown at her at a vaudeville show in England. And... Chopped it right out of the air. See, in my League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, I would use Carrie Nation as one of the characters there. Yeah, because League of Extraordinary Gentlemen just takes historical and fictional characters from a time period and then puts them all on one big team, has them fight evil. That sounds delightful. So you would have Carrie Nation, like she can spin around fast enough and turn into a tornado. I, I would just have her have super hatchet powers, but yeah, sure, tornado. <laughs> Like Hawkeye, but for axes. Just loading a hatchet into a bow. (laughs) (laughs) This is a good idea. (laughs) So now it's time for everyone's favorite segments on Anachronismo. What if they met? What if they met? What what if they they met? met? What if they met? What if they met? What if they met? What what if they met? What what if they met? What, what, if they met, what, what, if they, if they, if they, if they met. What What if they met? met? What if they met? Oh, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What if uh, U.S. military had just been like, these bugs, not gonna, not gonna work. We just need to give some random people some axes, have them break into people's houses and just smash the place up and then run away. We see the Soviet Union has been testing this. We need to do it to make ourselves safe. We're going to put a bunch of axe-chopping maniacs in your neighborhood. <laughs> Thank you for your cooperation. <laughs> We're going to load up this plane with axe-chopping maniacs and then have them parachute down into your neighborhood. And then you're just that pilot and co-pilot and watcher in the plane where they all get out of the bombs. <laughs> and there's just 200,000 axe-wielding maniacs on the plane. But don't worry, there's no yellow fever virus on the edges of their axes. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> of course, we're going to have to resettle all of these maniacs once this project is over. <laughs> I'm just imagining another cute little scenario Go on. where you have a bunch of temperance movement guinea pigs, mm-hmm. and they walk in with their little tiny guinea pig axes, and they're like kind of chopping like really low on the chairs, just leaving a few marks, not doing any damage at all. And then they like kind of give a satisfying like, "Yeah, we showed them. We rubbed this place up." <laughs> squeak, squeak. And then they squeak out out of there. Mm-hmm. And one of them raises a hand at their next meeting being like, couldn't we just use our teeth? That's what they're for. And everyone looks at their axes and looks at him and all simultaneously just drop their axes and scurry out in the (laughs) night. Oh, Uh, that's what the little souvenir hatchets were for. They were just guinea pig axes axes that she picked up. They got left behind. Yeah. Of course. Full circle. Well, that's going to do it for us this week here on Anachronismo. Uh, if you liked our podcast, please leave us a review on uh, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, wherever you listen to us. We got another review uh, this past week from Mark Chimpasano, oh. which I believe is our friend Mark Camposano writing in the character of a monkey puppet. Oh, he hated that Wait, monkey puppet. He, hate, he hates that monkey puppet. Is it clear he's a monkey puppet? In yes. The oh. he's, he thinks that our podcast is called Bananachronismo. Frankly, it's a wildly inaccurate review, but it is five stars, and it is very cute, so I wanted to give a shout-out. Thanks, Mark Chimpasano, for <laughs> this uh, wonderful and completely inaccurate review. It really made me smile today. And if you like us, too, please leave us a review of your own, preferably not in the character of a monkey puppet, because it's not that helpful for people to find us, despite being delightful. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at, at @anacpodcast. that's A-N-A-C podcast. Uh, or contact us at itsanachronismo at gmail.com. We've still got a show coming up in April, a live show on the 29th, I believe. On the 28th. 
uh, where we're really doing a double show with Improv History at the Democracy Center in Cambridge. Come on down. Come have a beer with us. Come see a show. We'll see you next time here on Anachronismo. there were like three of them that were super famous or yeah there was simeon simeon the younger and simeon the third who was struck by lightning Hmm. so was that their stylite reel (laughs) anachronismo drop off this hand (laughs) 